We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. I received a question today, which I have had many questions about actually uh, in recent years, and I think I've mentioned this perhaps before. I don't know about in this context, but the questions, uh, the questions really had to do about our dreams. And uh, so I thought I would uh, just mention a couple things and see how far we get. And I've got uh, my message from Acts chapter 10 here on deck as well. So uh, let's uh, talk about these questions briefly and then um, move on from there. So uh, I have four, let me see, I have four questions that I uh, fabricated from the question that I received today. Uh, The first question is, are a person's dreams sometimes God's way of revealing the truth? (laughs) Um, In the church era, the simple answer to that question is no, That is not the case. We can say this with confidence because the canon is closed and new revelation is not being given by any means, uh, whether uh, dreams uh, or visions or prophecies or that sort of thing. 1 Corinthians 13.8 talks about when that which is perfect has come, that which is in part will be done away. I I take that to be a, a, a passage about revelation. Others disagree about that, but I'm going to stick with that. Ephesians 2.20 talks about the foundation of the apostles and prophets being laid. There are no more apostles, no more prophets, no more foundation being laid. The church has been built. We are building upon that foundation, Jesus Christ. Um, And so, you know, if you're missing pieces of the foundation, you can't have any kind of sturdy building. Uh, And uh, there's always going to be a question. 2 Peter 1.3 says that God has given to us everything that pertains to life and godliness. There's not anything missing uh, you don't need to have dreams to tell you about you know, what God wants you to do or things like that. Uh, this is a very common thing, and I think it's because of the, the uh, I should say, a common idea that, that God speaks through these dreams because of a couple things. One, we see dreams in the Bible where God reveals things, and two, dreams have this kind of otherworldly feel to them, like they're different than everything else. They're kind of their own thing or... They're weird, you know, or something, and so that can cause us to, uh, people, I should say, to uh, have thoughts, of, oh, maybe God's telling me something through these dreams. Way overworked, uh, folks, and I don't want you to uh, fall into that trap. If you want to know what God is saying, you read his word, and uh, don't trust what's coming out of your own brain in the middle of the night. Um, some of us can't trust what comes out of our brain during the daytime, much less during the nighttime. So uh, the scriptures are clear that during prior times, God sometimes used dreams uh, to reveal information. Uh, so for instance, Daniel uh, 1.7, uh, sorry, 117, it has to do with uh, Daniel being uh, 
kind of extolled as somebody who can interpret dreams and visions that was known about him. Or Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, Joseph sees an angel of the Lord in a dream instructing him, don't be afraid to take Mary, your wife. But, but given the frequency of dreams in the world, okay, take all the people in the world, how many dreams do you think are dreamt in a night? Okay, the percentage of dreams, in, even in that prior time, that were revelatory dreams was very vanishingly, extraordinarily small, okay? Very, very small percentage. So we oughtn't to think that this is a a phenomenon that happens every night, you know, uh, as if everybody's getting divine revelation all the time. Scriptures are also clear that during the future era, dreams will once again be used by God to convey information from heaven. And I can uh, share with you one quick verse that we've studied in our series in Acts, chapter 2, verse 17. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Okay, so these are visions and dreams that have some revelatory character to them. And we'll just have to wait and see what that's all about. I've argued that that resumption of some of these revelatory gifts will indicate it will happen, and it's a good indication that things have ceased for now because there would be no need for them to resume or be prophesied if they're always going on anyway. Second question: What leads to the content of my dreams? Where does the where does my dream content come from? This is a more difficult question, but dreams are basically thoughts. Okay? They're very vivid thoughts, but they are thoughts nonetheless, thoughts that we have while sleeping. I don't know if some of you have daydreaming kinds of thoughts where you have vivid pictures in your mind. Some people have that more, maybe few people have that frequently, but that is a thing too. But let's just set, kind of keep the two categories separate, daytime thoughts and nighttime thoughts. So if you we're having a question about what is what leads to the content of my dreams, well, what leads to the content of your thoughts during the daytime? Let's answer that question first. Where do your thoughts come from in the daytime? There's a combination of factors. I've listed three of them with a combination one to roll them all up. Number one, there are things that you try to think about, okay? So you consciously exercise your brain to think about certain things that you want to think about. Say the task that you're doing right now or some planning or research, some learning, something like that. You're trying to think about it. And that purposeful thinking could be righteous or it could be sinful thinking. Then there are fleshly desires which can influence your thinking and those are going to be sinful in their orientation. There's a stimuli that come from the outside world through sight, sound, touch, taste, smell. Uh, These factors can induce thoughts that may lean to righteous or sinful direction. So things you see, obviously, the eye gate here, you know, um, media, you know, words, concepts, stories, that sort of thing. Um, Some of that, I'm, I'm putting under that heading of purposeful thinking, too, is like your Bible reading. 
you purpose to read the Bible, you're thinking about it. God's Spirit uses that. He uses what you've memorized. Okay, so there's there's more complexities here, but um, and then fourthly, so you have the purposeful thoughts, the fleshly desires, the stimuli from the outside, and then all three of those factors can interact with one another, so that you say you try to think about a bad thing and seek flesh-pleasing stimuli that come from the outside and direct your eyes to focus in that direction, and though that leads to thoughts and further thoughts coming in your mind. Obviously, I could probably write a whole chapter in a book or a whole book on this question itself, but I thought I would just start with that issue of what do you think about during the day? Your brain then can remember most of the things that you see, hear, sense, smell, touch, uh, and can remember faces that you've seen on the street. It can even construct new variations on those faces, places, circumstances, and sometimes do so in seemingly fantastical or unrealistic ways. I'm sure you've all had dreams that are very strange, right? Combinations of things places that you might never thought you have been to or truncated versions of places where you have been or you know places that don't make sense you know when you move about in them and stuff like that so you have all of that and i'm saying that all of those same factors apply in your nighttime brain as the daytime brain perhaps with one exception let me say what that is uh, and that's going to come under the third question. Is there accountability to God for what is thought in your dreams? Are you accountable to God for what you think in your dreams? The answer to that question is yes. Yes, your dreams are yours and yours alone. They don't come from someone else. They don't belong to someone else. They're not planted there by the devil. They're not the, they're his fault. They arise from your own heart and mind. And as such, are subject to what the Lord Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart come what? Well, all kinds of evil thoughts, for example, or good thoughts, you know. Uh, uh, all those things that he mentions in Matthew 15 and Mark 7 and Luke chapter 6 that we've looked at from time to time. Our hearts are characterized by sinful depravity to a greater or lesser degree. Greater if we're unsaved, lesser if we're saved and more sanctified, and that affects what then comes out of our hearts in our thoughts, whether during the day or during the night. Now, because a dream happens when you're asleep, we'll say partially unconscious, it may feel like you can excuse the content of your dreams because you do not have overt control over those thoughts, you would think, like, I said, number one, when you, you know, the things you purposefully think about, you, you kind of feel like uh, almost uh, victimized by your thoughts in your dream because they just come. But you can have thoughts or influence thoughts during your dreams. Uh, think about that. That's an interesting thought, but it's true um, if you exercise yourself towards self-control. Now, regardless of whether you've experienced that phenomena of, of kind of having some influence over the thoughts in your dreams, well, for example, you're having a bad, a bad dream, 
you can say to yourself, no, I am not going to participate in that or think about that, and you can stop that. Um, other times you might experience that to be very difficult to do. But we must recognize that our flesh, which I mentioned under, under number two above, is the number two influence, uh, still desires sinful things and can affect what we are thinking while asleep. Stimuli from outside of our mind can also affect how we think and dream in our sleep. Okay, so again, just like during the daytime, the stimuli that we have from the outside. Perhaps we have a fever in our body, so it's outside of our mind, but it's in our physical condition. Perhaps we smell a skunk in the middle of the night, and that induces some kind of strange dream. Have you ever had that happen before? We've had a lot of skunk smells at our house, so we have plenty of opportunity for that. Um, or you hear a loud noise outside of the house and it gets integrated into your dream somehow. Have you ever had that happen? That's weird. These stimuli can all be incorporated into our uh, dream thoughts because they affect our brain, how we think. But the bottom line is that if we, if we dream a sinful dream, we ought to confess to God because it's a sin. It came from us, no one else. And if we say that, I hasten to add, well, thank God for pleasant dreams as well. I'm sure you've heard the uh, nighttime, um, you know, good night saying, uh, pleasant dreams or sweet dreams. <laughs> that's kind of important, actually. That might be especially important for children, you know, if they're concerned about having night terrors or nightmares, or bad dreams, you know, or somebody's chasing them, or something very unpleasant. Uh, you can trust the Lord about that. Uh, back to the question, can I influence my dreams? Well, in short, the answer is yes. And here I'm not really so much talking about doing it at the time of the dream, but in preparation for it. Because you know you're going to have a dream sometime in your future sleep, right? not tonight, then the next night, or the next night, or the next night. And some of us have more than others. But as you ingest God's Word, for example, you purify your heart more. You are cautious about what you expose yourself to during the daytime. You can reduce sinful and scary dreams by purifying your mind. Proverbs 4.23 tells us that uh, we must keep our hearts with all diligence. Why? Because out of it flow the issues of life. We looked at this in our parenting uh, series in Sunday school recently, Proverbs 4.23 again. So we, we are responsible for shaping the influences on our hearts as adults, and we're responsible for helping our kids and shaping the influences on their heart as children in order to uh, accomplish that. Sometimes there are triggers, too. Maybe certain foods or illness or lack of exercise or too much stress or mismanagement of stress. All of those things may influence the presence and frequency of your dreams. I heard somebody say or read something sometime that if you, if you are, if something's, you know, in your mind and it's maybe even troubling you, but you're kind of pushing off the thoughts of it during the day, guess where those thoughts might crop out again in your dreams at night. So if you become aware of particular things that are triggers like this, 
you can take steps to mitigate their influence on your nighttime thought life. Nighttime thought life equals dreams. A passage that I'll use when I talk to people about this or related subjects of thought is Philippians 4, 6 to 9. There Paul says, you, you battle anxiety with prayer and you purpose in your heart to think pure and true thoughts and you give yourself to obedience to the apostolic teaching. Okay, the summary of those, that's a threefold summary of what Paul is doing there. He says, first of all, uh, don't be anxious for anything but in everything by prayer. So you prayer, fight, anxiety. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And then he talks about uh, the things uh, that you want to think about. You know, finally, brethren, whatever things are true and honest and just and pure and lovely. See, if you're fixating on those kinds of things during the daytime, you're training your mind, disciplining your mind away from the things that are opposite of that. And then in verse number nine, the apostle Paul says, the things which you have heard and seen and received and, I can't forget, I forget the other word. What is it? Seen and heard and received. (laughs) Got to turn my Bible there. Uh, Philippians 4, um, it'll come as soon as I see it again. In uh, Philippians 4, number, verse number 9, the things which you oh, have learned, <laughs> learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. Okay, so learned and received and saw and heard in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. So if you're obedient to apostolic teaching, handing over anxieties in prayer, and you are disciplining your mind to think on things that are pure and lovely and of good report and virtuous and praiseworthy and true and honest and all of that, then you will be preparing your mind for your next night's rest. We hope then to conform our thoughts to Scripture so that we will be even more godly in our nighttime thinking. Psalm 63, 6 is how I'll close this portion of our message tonight. It says, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. When I meditate upon you in my bed and meditate, or remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. May that kind of thing mark our thinking and our dreams, okay? I do have a resource there uh, that I can share with you uh, called Fighting the Fear of Bad Dreams, which has some of the same kind of things that I've talked about here, but it's a little more focused on a nightmare kind of handling that uh, from the uh, ACBC folks, which is very helpful. So uh, I'm, I know there's a lot more work to be done there. In fact, I suspect that a very lengthy academic research paper could be offered on that uh, topic uh, or a, bo- a popular book uh, that would help people with it. So, <clears throat> all right, let's uh, shift our attention to the book of Acts, please, for just a few moments tonight in Acts chapter 10. We've spent quite a bit of time here. This will be our third message in the book, uh, our chapter, rather, of Acts 10. And uh, I'm not going to keep you till our uh, normal ending time. God willing, we'll get you out of here a few minutes early because we finished praying a few minutes early. Uh, The Apostle Peter is preaching to uh, a Gentile audience in verse 42, he says, uh, when he's in the midst of telling about Jesus, how God raised him up, 
uh, and uh, after he was killed by being hung on a tree, witnesses saw him, verse 42 in chapter 10, and he commanded us to preach to the people. So after his resurrection, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who is ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Now, you might have overlooked this, as I have to some extent overlooked it uh, over the years, but I don't want us to overlook it after this point today, okay? Uh, What the Apostle Peter is saying is that not only is Jesus Christ Savior, and we saw earlier in verse number 36 that he is Lord of all, but he's also judge. And people forget that. The, the, uh, the blessed truth is, however, that although he is judge, he's also the one from whom you get remission of sins. So he has a twofold kind of office that way. The Savior side and the judge side, of course, the Lord side, if he, if he has three sides, we could say. But um, it's fascinating to me that these are put together They were obligated to preach that Jesus was ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Okay, how many gospel tracts tell that part of the gospel? Do you know? Probably not too many. But if, I guess I just have to stop and ask myself and ask you this. If Jesus commanded the apostles to preach to the people and testify that it is he who is ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead, What do you think we should be doing? Possibly the same thing? Not possibly, for sure the same thing. So we have to remember this threefold office here. We think of prophet, priest, and king, but what about Savior, Lord, and judge? The offices of Jesus that have a bit more of an edge to them are not so popular. You know, Savior, everybody loves that, sort of. I mean, not everybody, but... You know, well, that's nice. He's, Jesus is a nice guy. But what about Lord? Well, I don't want too much about it. Judge, you know, those are the two. The Lord and the judge titles and offices have a little bit more of an edge on them and fall easily onto hard times because people don't want to hear that. But the, the Lord will be the judge of the living and the dead. No matter their state of aliveness at the time of the judgment, he will raise people from the dead so that they can stand in the judgment and experience that judgment. Now, the idea of judge, Jesus as judge, permeates the New Testament. I didn't realize this. I mean, I knew it in my head, but just to put it out altogether in one little paragraph here is amazing. Acts 10.42 is the one we just looked at. But if we look at some others, I think you'll see, and hopefully this will drive the truth home, Acts 17.31 God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. That's Acts 17.31. Then in the apostolic preaching, again, Acts chapter 24, verse 25, Paul reasoning with Felix about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, 
I will call for you. So he pushed it off. Too bad that he did that. He needed to not do that. John chapter 5 is another section, a little more extended section in John 5, 26. The scripture says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I myself can do nothing. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. We'll pile on a couple more verses. John chapter 9, verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who do not see, sorry, those who do see may be made blind. And there are some other ones, not just in the Gospels and in Acts, but say Romans chapter 2, verse uh, 16, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So an integral part of the gospel is that Christ will come and he will judge people in accordance with the gospel. And there's also Romans chapter uh, 14, 10 through 12. But why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Take that to be the judgment seat upon which Christ is seated, the judgment seat at which Christ does judging. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. There's also 2 Corinthians 5.10 familiar with this perhaps we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done whether good or whether bad second timothy chapter 4 and verse number 1 these are just sprinkled all over the place second timothy 4:1 here in scripture i charge you therefore before god and the lord jesus christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and at his kingdom. Then Matthew chapter 16, verse 27. These notes are available online, by the way. If you're watching online, thank you for doing that. The notes are there, and it says part three next to them, but it's uh, an updated version of the notes from the last time. So you've got to go to page maybe seven or eight to find what I'm talking about here. But Matthew 16, 27, for the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. So that reward, obviously, according to works, assumes or presumes a judgment will be built in with that. Then any enthronement text regarding Jesus can be marshaled here as well, since in a kingdom reign, the king naturally has prerogative as judge if he so chooses to exercise it. Does that make sense? The king is judge, jury, and executioner in a, we'll say, a proper kingdom, you know, one in which he has the authority to actually reign. 
Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28 records Jesus saying to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So there's that with relationship with them around the, the thrones here and the judgment. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31, another enthronement text, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. And I didn't put this in my notes, but you obviously would run into it by reading this text. It says in the next verse, all the nations will be gathered before Him. There'll be the sheep on one hand and the goats on the other. And what do you think He's doing with those sheep and goats? Judging. <laughs> yeah. And then there's Revelation 20 and verse number 4. Revelation 20 and verse number 4. Sometimes hard to get to the last pages of your Bible, isn't it? Revelation 20 and verse 4. And I saw thrones. There's another throne passage. And they sat on them. And judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark in their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So that reigning with Christ and the explicit word of judgment tells us that there are judgment responsibilities assigned to God's people. Then later on in that same passage in Revelation 20, we read of the future great white throne judgment. There the small and great stand before God. Verse number 11 the earth and heaven fled away, the dead, small and great, verse 12, standing before God. And when you read that standing before God, I think it's easy for us to say, hey, look, there it is, the, the, Father, the Father's in charge of this judgment. But John 5, 21 to 23, where right next door to where we were a few moments ago in John chapter 5, listen to this in 521, it says... For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So if you please, if you picture the, the judgment, the great white throne judgment with God the Father there, you might think of Him as, as the judgment begins, stepping down off the judgment seat, and offering it to his son and saying, this is your judgment. All judgment has been committed to the son because he is the son of man. He partakes, not only of, uh, he partakes of humanity not only to suffer and die for us, not only to be a faithful high priest for us, not only to learn obedience by the things that he suffered, but also to be a perfectly suited judge for the ones that he is judging. And so we ought to have a very healthy level of fear for the one with whom we have to do as well. But the good news is, if you read back in John 5, 24 and 25, we can be doubly assured if we are those who trust in Christ because he's the one to whom all judgment has been committed. But he says this in verse 24 of John 5, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. 
the, the divine man sitting behind the bar, the bench, in that glorious courtroom with his robes and vestments upon him, says, if you believe in me, you will not come before this bar in judgment for your sin, but rather you will pass out of death and into life. Most assuredly, he says to us. Since he's the judge, I'd venture to say he knows what he's talking about. What do you think? It's his prerogative. And he says, all those that trust in me will come into a different kind of judgment than all those that don't trust in me. People who believe in him will not come into judgment, but will pass from death into life. In fact, the scriptures are even more emphatic. He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. Not will have, may have, might have, but has presently and will not come into judgment. Well, that'll do it for this evening, my friends, as we emphasize Jesus as judge and how he is able to save us from a very bad outcome in judgment. Let us pray tonight. Father, we thank you and pray that you'll take your word and you'll Just put it right in our hearts, plant it there, water it, fertilize it, cause it to grow. Help us, Lord, whatever way tonight, maybe we didn't think so much about Jesus being judge in the future, maybe we didn't really uh, reverence him the way that we should, or you, maybe we haven't even come to faith yet, and we need to because we want to be on the right side of that judgment. Uh, on the right side of the judge, really, because he's the one who is going to be making that evaluation. We'll give you thanks, Lord. Bless your people the rest of this calendar week as we finish out the seven days you've allotted to us this week by your grace, if you so choose, and bring us together again, some of the men on Saturday, the whole church family again on the first day of the next week. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.